One of the most common negative emotions that I wrestle with is feelings of inadequacy. There are times when I think of all that Jesus has called me to be and all that Jesus has called me to do and all of what needs to be done to reach our city for Jesus and it almost overwhelms me. In these times I feel that there's no way that I can be who Jesus needs me to be or do what Jesus wants me to do. I don't know enough. I'm not creative enough. I'm just not good enough. I read an article that said that's a fairly common feeling for pastors to have. But I have to think that pastors probably aren't the only ones who feel this way. I think it's safe to say that in one way or another, we all probably wrestle with feelings of inadequacy at certain areas of our life at certain times of our life. And it could be in parenting. I mean, I know that as a dad of little girls, what I see in in pop culture, it terrifies me. The way that immorality is normalized, it makes me wonder how in the world it's possible to raise pure children in such an impure world. The number of kids who fall away from the faith when they move off to college is high in number and it's pretty terrifying to think about. Stuff like that can be overwhelming and make us wonder how on the earth can we truly raise godly children in such an ungodly world. For some, a bigger issue may be their past. They know the ways that they've sinned and have blown it in the past and they wonder who in the world they are to try and serve Jesus in any sort of visible way. I heard a pastor tell a story of a woman once that came to his church and she got saved and began to serve and She wanted to serve and do whatever God wanted her to do. And the way that they needed her to serve at that time was to be a door greeter and to hand out the bulletins. But she was hesitant to do that and and tried to do anything else. She wanted to really work behind the scenes and not be out front where people could see. And as the pastor kind of pressed her to find out why she felt this way, she admitted that before she was saved, she had been a stripper in their community and was afraid of someone recognizing her as they came into church. And then what would they say and what would they think? Because of who she was, and now she was at church trying to serve Jesus. She felt that her past mistakes were so great that they disqualified her from ever being able to serve Jesus in any way. For others, the issue could be struggles that they currently have. While as believers we are saved from our punishment to sin, and we are actually freed from slavery to sin, our sinful nature doesn't just go away the moment that we're saved. The struggle is is always there. And we wrestle daily in one form or another with one temptation or another. And some are so aware of our struggles and our failures that we feel there's just no way that we can serve Jesus. We had a guy in our church at Fort Gibson that was this way. He was a a good guy. He he did love Jesus, but he had anger management problems. and, And at times they overwhelmed him. And on one particular instance, he was out fishing. Uh, on the bank and all by himself out there, something happened and set him off. And he had a, a screaming, cussing fit on the side of the bank when no one was around. And when he finished his fit, he looked around and there was a, a man from our church and his son in a boat out in the water watching the fit take place. And he was so embarrassed by what he had done, that he didn't come back to church for years. He felt that if he could not act any better than that, he probably wasn't even a Christian to begin with. For others, 
the issue could be they just don't feel equipped to do anything in service to Jesus. They don't feel that they know anything that they could use. They don't feel they're gifted in any way to, to serve Jesus. They don't see how their, their gifts and their abilities and their current passions could be used in their service to Jesus. And while they would love to serve Jesus, they just don't feel as though that they can. And with all of these, the feelings of inadequacy are often compounded because we know the Bible teaches that we should serve Jesus. We know the Bible teaches that we're supposed to live for Him in our lives and that we are supposed to be open disciples and, and find ways to serve Him in our lives. And this, the knowledge that we should, but the feelings we can't, they add to our feelings of inadequacy and our feelings of guilt. And we feel overwhelmed and we feel overcome. So what do we do? What do we do if we don't feel we're able be faithful in our service to Jesus, or we don't feel qualified to serve Jesus? Do we, do we give up and just say, I'm, I'm not the one that's supposed to do it? Do we try to, to muddle through it and just say, even though I'm not good enough, I'm going to try something anyway, but it'll never be any good, and just add to our feelings of discouragement and being overwhelmed? Or is there another answer? Is there something, something from God? That would overcome our inadequacy and would make us adequate regardless of anything that's going on or has gone on in our lives. The sermon we're going to study today, the passage we'll look at today, will try to answer these questions. Open your Bible to Luke chapter 1. Verse 26 is where we're going to start at. It's page 779 in the Pew Bibles. And if you, when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Luke 1 and 26 says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can these things be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is born will be called the Son of God. Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The title of the message this morning is Take Courage and Trust God's Grace. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and you are awesome and you are worthy of our praise and you are worthy of our devotion. 
And Father, today you know our hearts and you know our struggles and you know the feelings of inadequacy that we wrestle with in our lives. And Father, the issues that we feel hold us back are not surprising to you. You knew all about us and what we would be like and the struggles that we would have and the things that we would do long before we ever came upon this earth. And God, you, you have still planned for us to serve you. You have planned for us to live for you. You have planned for us to bring glory to you with a full knowledge of everything there is to know about our lives and our struggles, and our attitudes, and our failures. And so, Lord, today we need to learn from Your Word how we can serve You no matter what. We need to trust that You are great, and You can make up easily what is lacking in us. Father, today begin to work in our hearts and bring comfort, and encouragement and strength from your word. Let your spirit fill us and guide us to see what you would have us to be and what you would have us to do and build a deep faith in us that those things, they can be done. Father, fill me today with your Holy Spirit that I could speak your words and your ways for your glory. And as I preach, let your Holy Spirit move in our hearts. Let him strengthen us where we need strengthening. Let him convict us where we need convicting. Let him correct us where we need correcting. Let him help us where we need help. Father, we'll be careful to give you all the praise for whatever happens in our lives. For you alone deserve it. We ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. That you may be seated. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to the city, to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to bring another message of good news to someone. Now, there are some details in verse 26 that are insignificant to most of us, but are significant to the story. It says that Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And the reason that's significant is because the people of Galilee were largely looked down upon by the rest of the Jews. Commentator Warren Wiersbe says that the Jews in Galilee weren't considered to be kosher because of their constant contact with the Gentiles. And as much as they disliked the the region of Galilee, they had a special dislike for the city of Nazareth. In fact, they despised the city of Nazareth. Probably the best biblical illustration of the attitude of the people toward the city of Nazareth is found in the Gospel of John early on. Nathanael is told that Jesus is the Messiah and that he has come from Nazareth. And Nathanael responds and he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You have a pretty low opinion of a place when you don't believe anything or anyone that comes out of that place could ever be any good. That was the opinion that they had. It was so bad that to be called a Galilean or a Nazarene was an expression of contempt. And despite the reputation of the place 
and the opinion of the most of the Jews of that place. It was a girl from Nazareth of Galilee that God chose to be the mother of the promised Messiah. Now, Mary was from the house and the lineage of David. She was a virgin and she was betrothed to a man named Joseph. Now, betrothal at this point was a bit different than an engagement is in our day. And we'll get more into that next week. But for our purposes today, we need to know that it was virtually as binding as a wedding itself. In fact, to break off a betrothal actually required a divorce. It was so binding that even though they didn't come together as husband and wife, they were still called husband and wife up until the time of the wedding. From what I can gather, I believe Mary and Joseph were poor. And I say this because Mary's sacrifice for ritual purity after the birth of Jesus is a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And the law said that a woman was to bring a lamb for the sacrifice after the ritual impurity unless they were too poor to afford one. In which case they were to bring a turtle dove or two two young pigeons. Mary is also at this point, she is fairly young. Most commentators believe that she was likely between 14 to 16 years of age at the point where we find her today. Now, a girl of 14 to 16 to be betrothed to someone sounds strange to our culture, but that was very common in their culture. That was just the way things were done. Now, we have spoilers. We know what the message is and we know what the angel is going to tell her. And knowing what we know. Think how much she has working against her. She's a Jew, but she's from a despised part of the Jewish world. She's engaged, but she's not yet married. She's pretty young. She's poor. She's a virgin. All in all, she doesn't seem like the most likely candidate to be the mother of the Messiah. And yet she is the person. That God chose to be the mother of the Messiah that would come into the world. Gabriel, he, he comes to her and he greets her with what I would think would be an awesome greeting. Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. I mean, you would think that a greeting like that from an angel of the Lord would be the most encouraging, faith-building thing that a person would ever have. But the Bible says that when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. And what I find interesting is it doesn't say that she's necessarily troubled by the sight of the angel. You know, most other people in Scripture, when they see one of God's angels, they're afraid of the angel. But Mary's concern are the words that he spoke. Highly favored one. Blessed are you among women. She's bothered. She's concerned. She might be even a little frightened. What, what would something like that mean for her? The angel sees and he recognizes her, her confusion and her fear. And he says to her, do not be afraid. For you have found favor with God. Now the word favor that's used here in most of the English translations is the same Greek word that's used for grace. And that makes sense. Since grace is often defined as the undeserved favor of God. So what we see is the angel telling Mary not to be afraid. 
because God's grace is for her. Specifically, don't be afraid because God's grace is going to be given to you and poured out upon you. And then he tells her the good news of why he has come. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. See, part of the way that God's grace was going to work in Mary's life was that she would be chosen to be the mother of the Messiah. This was something incredible and it was something that was impossible. It was incredible because this is what Israel had been waiting on forever. I mean, since Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and had been kicked out, Israel had been looking forward to the day that the one who would crush the head of the serpent would come and would set things aright. And they were waiting on this day and had been hoping for and looking for it. And now it was coming. What an incredible thought. But it was also impossible because, as Mary says, I do not know a man. How is it possible she have a child having been and been remained a virgin? Well, God's grace, it ensures that Mary isn't dependent on human power to accomplish God's purposes. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. See, with God, the, the impossible is possible because God can do all things. And God being doing the impossible for us, for people, that's always been the way God does things. I mean, when God promised that the Messiah would come to the world, one of his promises said that a virgin would conceive and bear a son and his name would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. God always intended that the Messiah would come upon the earth in a way that was not humanly possible. It would be, His coming would be something that would really point everything to God. That God, in, way back in Isaiah, when God said a virgin would conceive, that God knew what He was talking about. That when God said a virgin could conceive, that God could do what He had said He could do. See, God delights in doing in and through and for humanity the things that we cannot do in, through, and for ourselves. It's just the way God works. This is His grace at work in our lives. This is His grace that is for us in our lives. And after being told all of this, Mary gives a wonderful response. Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. Basically, Mary just says, yes, Lord. She decides to totally surrender and to trust God's plan and God's grace for her life. And while we're familiar with the story, let's just keep some things in mind. Let's remember how impossible 
this is. A virgin would conceive. Keep in mind how far-fetched this is going to sound to the people around her. I mean, if someone came to you, claimed to be a virgin that was pregnant, would you believe them? If they said God sent an angel and said this was His will, how would you respond? Probably how they responded too. Keep in mind the stigma attached to an unmarried woman having a child in this day. It was not remotely acceptable. It was not remotely okay. It was a a deep and a disgraceful thing for this to happen. Keep in mind the fact that Joseph would most likely divorce her for this. And his grounds for divorce would be adultery. Because how else could a virgin get pregnant? See, if Joseph stayed with her, it would be like saying, I sinned along with her. The only way Joseph could save his reputation is to deny he had any part in this. Well, the only natural way for her to be pregnant then would for that to be an adulterous relationship. And we'll see next week that that was, in fact, Joseph's initial response. Keep in mind that the consequence for adultery, according to the law, it was death. It wasn't a bit of a stigma. It wasn't you lost some social standing. They took you outside the city and your friends and your family. They picked up rocks and they killed you. Keep in mind, all of these things were working against her. Who was going to believe that an unwed, betrothed virgin from Nazareth of Galilee was chosen by God to be the mother of the Messiah? And that this same God that chose her was going to miraculously make her pregnant. And the child that would come would be the Son of God Himself. Despite all that was working against her, Mary's response is simply, Yes. Yes, Lord. I will do all that You want me to do. Mary's submission to God began when the angel told her not to be afraid because she had found favor with the Lord. God's grace gave her the courage to trust God's will. God's grace gave her the courage to trust that God would do in her and through her and for her all that he had said he would do. God's grace for her gave her the courage to Risk her reputation, her future marriage, her dreams for the future, even her very life, just to do God's will. God's grace, it made all the difference in Mary's life. And God's grace will make all the difference 
and our lives. Through this that we learn, we should take courage from the favor and the power of God's grace. The reality of life is we will always have something that makes us feel insecure. There will always be a reason that we feel inadequate in one area or one way or another. There will always be things that bring fear into our lives. And if we determine we will not serve the Lord and we cannot serve the Lord until we feel adequate in everything, then we will never serve the Lord. If we determine we will not serve the Lord until we feel secure in every way, we will never serve the Lord. If we determine I will never serve the Lord until I am not afraid of anything, we will never serve the Lord. There are always going to be reasons. There's always going to be issues. There's always going to be stuff. And we have a choice. We can let those things control us or we can trust God's grace. If we let those things control us, we will never, ever be all that God wants us to be. And we will never, ever do what God wants us to do. But if we trust God's grace, we can take courage from it, from the favor and the power that's connected to God's grace. And we can move out and do our best to be what God wants us to be. We can move out and do what God wants us to do. There's a lot about God's grace that we could talk about, but I have three, three reasons quickly ish as to why we should take courage from the favor and the power of God's grace. The first is I am saved by grace. God's grace is the foundation for our salvation. Everything is always about the grace of of God. I like this passage. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And here's just the phrase I want us to focus on for now. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Everything about our salvation was God's idea. And that, that is to me, that's a huge thing to remember. The plan of salvation of Jesus coming to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. God's plan. You and I, our forefathers, nobody before us came up with that. God. When Adam and Eve sinned, God already had a plan in place how to fix what was going to go wrong on that day. And God planned for Jesus to come. And God planned for Jesus to be crucified. It was all a part of God's plan. Jesus came to earth knowing full well the vast majority of the world would reject him. That they would turn him over to the religious leaders. That they would nail him to a cross. And while he was on the cross suffering physical death. That God would pour all of the punishment for all of our sin on him. And he would take every drop of it. And he would say it is finished. He would give up the ghost and he would die. He would rise on the third day. And then he would ascend into heaven. All of that was always a part of God's plan. And, And I'm sure we know that. But what I want us to notice in this is that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Because it's one thing to say that God chose the plan. But understand that God chose you. I mean, God chose you as an individual. 
Right? He, he didn't choose you because you were good. Before the foundation of the world, you had technically not actually, none of us had, had actually done anything, good or bad. But God chose us in full knowledge of all that we would do. He, he chose us in, in full knowledge of every action we would take, every attitude we would have, every... There's no part of our lives God did not know about when He chose us before the foundation of the world. But not only did He choose us in a general way, He chose us in a very specific way. God reached out to us to draw us to Jesus. Right? Because we all lived at some point where we didn't care about what God wanted. We didn't care about God's will and God's plan for our lives. Probably we heard the gospel multiple times, but it did not affect us in any noticeable way. But then there came a day where somehow, some reason, for some way, we knew it was for us. It was God jerking on us and calling us. And all of that, that was God. You and I came to Jesus because God reached out to us as individuals. And he began to knock on our heart's door. He began to deal in our lives and he began to say, come to me. And when we responded, he forgave our sins. He made us new. And all of that was God's grace. So we are saved through faith, by grace through faith. Not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works. Lest anyone should boast. The idea of saved by grace and not of works, to me it's a two-sided coin or a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it's challenging, and on the other, comforting. It's challenging because it, it crushes our pride. So there's not a one of us that will stand before God in heaven and say, I did it. Gosh, in fact... We won't stand before God and say, we did it. You, you got me going, but I, I took it the rest of the way. It's a challenging thought. We're a, humans are just a proud people. And to say that, God, you did it. I'm here today because of what you have done. Not, not my goodness. Not my family. Not my nationality. Not the church I went to. I'm here today simply because you chose me and you saved me through grace. It's a humbling thing. But there's also something encouraging about that. Because on, on my good days, here's what I know. I would never make it to heaven. I mean, on, on, on days where I am very aware of my depravity and my sin, I think if it was up to me, I would for sure be in hell. If it was up to me, I would, I mean, you ever think, I mean, just think about what the Bible says we're supposed to do and be. Just think about it in terms of, of love. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I mean, how consistently do we love God that way? To love your neighbor as you love yourself. I mean, and neighbor as it's defined in Scripture isn't just the people that live next to us. Basically, everybody, particularly people who need help. I ask you, who do you love like you love yourself? And then you say, well, I love my wife or I love my husband. Or I love my kids like I love myself. OK, that's that's great. And, and I'll be honest, that's impressive. But Scripture doesn't stop there. Scripture says, love your 
enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Woo. Who wants to sign up to love their enemies like Jesus has loved us? Let me ask you, do you do that faithfully? I don't. And yet that's what I'm called to do. So if it was up to me, I'd never make it. I mean, I don't think I would go a day. If, I don't think I could knuckle it under for a day and make it to heaven on my own. Maybe if I locked myself away in a room and didn't get on Facebook or go to Walmart or get out around anyone else, just sit in the room and read my Bible and listen to Christian music, I might could knuckle it under for a day. But even with that, my mind would wander and it would be hard. The grace of God says it's not about how good I am. It's about how good he is. Well, that's helpful. It's hopeful. It's encouraging. Take courage and trust the favor and the power of God's grace to save you. And not just to, to save you, but to keep you saved. See, I'm free through grace. This is, again, a part of the reason that God's grace is so awesome. You know, if God saved us and forgave us for our sins and gave us a clean slate and said, Okay, you're saved. I've forgiven everything in the past. Now you know better. Move out and live perfect and don't ever do these things again. That would be amazing on its own that he would wipe out the stuff we'd done up to the point where we called upon him. But even with that, how many of us have blown it since we've been saved? How many of us have blown it today? Don't raise your hand. Right? We, we need it. We need grace, not just at the initial point of salvation. But always. And God's grace doesn't just say, okay, I've forgiven your past, now the future is up to you. But the God's grace says this to us. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, I mean just let that passage and that truth sink into your mind. No condemnation. Now, if we had time... We would go to Romans 7 and look at the context. Because the verses just before this, the Apostle Paul is lamenting his struggle with sin. And he says things like, Oh, wretched man that I am. The things that I, I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I do. Anybody, anybody relate to that? Try to live for Jesus and you don't want to do the things you're not supposed to, but you find yourself doing them anyway. You want to do what you know you're supposed to do, but you end up not doing it. Man, I can. So Paul laments his sinful condition and his struggle with sin. And he says, and who, who can deliver me? Who can save me? And at last he says, thank the Lord for Jesus Christ. And then he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, the no condemnation here, this isn't just for believers who live perfectly. It's not as long as I live as I should, there is no condemnation for me. But if I blow it, suddenly I'm condemned again. No, the promise of no condemnation, it is for those who struggle with their sinful nature. 
It is for those who occasionally fail in their struggle against sin. And this is, again, this is huge. First John. John writes and he says, I write these things to you that you do not sin. But if anyone does sin, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Just again, let that sink in. It's given that we might not sin, but what happens if we do? Jesus turns against us. Is that what it says? If we do, then Jesus becomes our accuser. Is that what it says? No. If we do, Jesus is our advocate with the Father. Pleading the grace, the mercy, His blood and His sacrifice in our place. And I would love to say we'll never sin and we'll never struggle with sin, but I believe the struggle is always going to be there. I believe we'll live struggling against our sinful nature like Galatians 5 talks about all of our lives. There will always be a part of us that says, don't do what God wants you to do. Do something else instead. And there will always be the Holy Spirit saying, no, no, do what God wants you to do. And some days, bless God, we'll do what the Spirit wants us to do. We will surrender to the Spirit. We will live Spirit-filled and Spirit-led lives. Thankfully, we will. And on those days, we are free from condemnation. And Jesus is our advocate with the Father. The absolute truth is, on some days, we're not going to follow the Spirit. On some days, we are going to give in to our baser nature. And we are going to act in ways that are sinful. And my friend, write this down. On those days, Jesus is your advocate with the Father. And there is no condemnation for you because of what Jesus Christ has done. The genuine believer in Jesus will never be condemned as an unbeliever. That is a hopeful promise. So, can I serve Jesus despite my past? Absolutely, because there is no condemnation for you. In Christ Jesus, you can trust the favor and the power of God's grace, and you can serve Him despite whatever you may have done. Can I serve Him even though I struggle now? Absolutely you can, because there is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. And you can trust the favor and the power of God's grace and you can move out striving to be who He wants you to be. And when you fail, you just get up and you move on. You keep going. Because Jesus Christ is your advocate with the Father. There is grace for you when you do right. And there is grace for you when you do wrong. I'm free because of God's grace. And then finally, I'm sufficient because of God's grace. This is a good one. This is hopeful, helpful, and encouraging to me. And I hope it will be to you. The Bible tells us about a guy named Saul who became Paul, the Apostle. Paul, the Apostle, if you know the New Testament, was a pretty important guy. He started churches. He preached revivals. Gosh, he wrote most of our New Testament. He's a pretty important guy as far as the New Testament goes. And it's easy for us to say, Paul was just amazing on his own. There's just, there's Paul. And Paul is a cut above the rest of the world and no one else could ever, ever be like that. And so if I was Paul, then yeah, I would serve Jesus. I would do what he wanted me to do. I'd follow where he wanted me to go. But Paul actually knew something that that we tend to forget. 
Paul said, I, I, I'm the least of all the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now, let's just stop there. Before Paul was saved, Paul was not a good guy. Paul was a self-righteous Pharisee. He trusted in himself and his goodness and his obedience to the law. He actively persecuted believers. He sought to shut down the church of Jesus Christ. He hauled Christians off to prison. He gave them at times the ultimatum to deny Christ or to die. He was there when Christians were martyred for their faith. But when we talk about Paul being a persecutor, don't think about Paul as someone who says mean things on Facebook. Don't think about Paul as someone who says happy holidays. When Paul persecuted the church, people died. When Paul persecuted the church, families were ripped apart. When Paul persecuted the church, people were told, either deny Jesus or go to jail. Paul was a violent blasphemer against Jesus Christ. If Paul lived today, he would be on a terrorist watch list and would be listed as a, a member or a leader of a hate group against Christianity. So when Paul said he persecuted the church, it wasn't that he just didn't like Christians. He did all that he could to shut it down. If that meant killing them, then so be it. If that meant tossing them in prison, then so be it. Right? Paul never forgot what he was before. Paul didn't have a convenient lapse of memory that he had always just loved Jesus and done what he was supposed to do. Paul remembered his past, but he didn't let it hinder him because, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul understood that God's grace, it made up for his past. I mean, do you ever wonder? I mean, think about it. Paul, Paul was there when Stephen was murdered for his faith. And again, Stephen was stoned to death. So picture that brutal way of dying. Rocks being thrown, maybe begging for mercy. The sound of rocks crushing bone and flesh. The, the visual of what Stephen's body would have looked at after being, looked like after being beaten like that. The Bible says Paul saw it and he gave his approval toward it. Do you ever wonder if Paul laid in bed at night and that was the image in his head? Would you be able to get that image out of your head? I wouldn't. Paul was aware of his past and what he had done. But he said the grace of God is greater than that. The grace of God enables me to move past what I was to be what God wants me to be. I can be an apostle. I can write the letters of the New Testament. I can preach the gospel. I can plant churches because the grace of God has overcome my past. The grace of God is greater than my guilt. The grace of God has made me all that God wants me to be. And that grace isn't in vain, he says, because I have labored. The grace of God didn't make Paul lazy. It made Paul very motivated to live for Jesus. If God's grace would overcome all of that, and would enable him to do what Jesus wanted done, then by golly, he would do it to the best of his abilities, to the end of his days. Paul understood that his sufficiency, it was never from Paul. Not that he was sufficient of ourselves to think anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. 
who's made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. See, our, Paul's sufficiency, it wasn't even in the changes that Paul's made, that Paul made. His sufficiency was always in the grace of God. Again, here's a, a hard truth. You and I will never be sufficient on our own. We will always fall short of God's glorious standards in one way or another. We'll never be good enough to earn forgiveness. We'll never be good enough to deserve heaven. We'll never be good enough for God to answer our prayers. We'll never be good enough to deserve to get to stand and proclaim, Thus saith the Lord. We'll never be good enough to get to serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We will never, ever, ever be good enough. And so that's a hard fact. Positive truth is, God is more than enough to overcome our insufficiency. God is more than sufficient. God doesn't need you and I to be great. He is great. He needs you and I to be obedient. He needs you and I to trust Him. He needs you and I to say, This is what God says. This is what I'll do. Behold the servant of the Lord. Let it be unto me according to your word. You and I on our own, we're not sufficient for any of it. But through Jesus and because of Jesus, we are sufficient to do anything and everything that God would have us to do. So our past doesn't hold us back. Our present doesn't keep us from serving. Our failures, none of that's the issue. We are sufficient by the grace of God. And we can do anything God wants us to do. And we can be anything God wants us to be. That doesn't mean we'll do any of it perfectly. And it doesn't mean we'll do it right on the first try. But we have a choice when we fail. We can let our failures define us. And prevent us from being what Jesus wants us to be and doing what Jesus wants us to do. Or we can get up. And say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And my sufficiency is not of me, but of God. And then move out, trying not to do that again. We can take courage. And we can do anything God wants us to do. Because of the favor and the power of God's grace toward us. I would love this morning to take a lot of time. And talk about. The grace that is able to help us in our time of need. Or to talk about the grace of God that enables us to stand up through the hardships and the trials of life. Or the grace of God that, that teaches us how to live for Jesus. Or the grace of God that gifts us and enables us to serve Him. But time wouldn't permit me to do all of that, so I just want to say... Whatever it is, God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient for every need you have, every inadequacy you feel, every failure you've failed. In all things, God's grace is sufficient. And so the need for most of us isn't just to do more. 
but just to trust more. Just rely on the grace of God to make us sufficient. Rely on the grace of God to overcome our past and our present. Rely on the grace of God to give us the ability to do whatever God wants us to do. Take courage and trust the favor and the power of God's grace for your life today. Let's 